Edmonton. My dad was a deer farmer and started deer farming in Australia and was kind of taking off around the world at the time. And he became an expert in how to handle them. So putting him in a dark room, central control room, and using lights. He got the idea from getting flies out of the house, using lights at night. And then, yeah, travelled the world in 1990, sort of lecturing on it. So we went all across the States when it was becoming a big thing. So saw a lot of whitetail deer and a lot of deer farms that were starting up there. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that's crazy. Just yeah. whitetails or? All sorts. I can just remember holding a bobcat. Starkville, Mississippi, the police came and made all these Australian vets pour their beers out and told us to get back into the dormitories. I had my first ever hardcore Coca-Cola there. Went mental all night up and down the hallway. <laughs> Does your dad raise whitetail deer in Australia? No, we've got fallow deer. So a German, the Germans farm have a lot of them, but they're just a small deer, a bit bigger than a sheep. Mad little animals. They'll break your fingers when you touch them sort of thing. Yeah, we can't allow to farm the big red deer and elk and things like that because we have World Heritage Area. So we kind of, the industry had a boom and then it died, died in the ass pretty bad. But yeah, we killed on farm. So we had an abattoir on the farm. We'd kill them, butcher them up in a on-farm sort of cool room and then put them in eskies or cooler boxes and take them down to the capital city nearby and supply it to restaurants. And did that for 25 years. So yeah, grew yeah, up in a killing served room. deer in the restaurants there? That's yeah, cool. yep. Good old venison. It's pretty trendy in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, we had like a vertical integrated supply system. So it was quite nice. you kill on farm, take it to the restaurant, get the feedback. You could tweak the system. And then out of that, other businesses developed out of the farm. Do they still sell venison there? Yep. Yeah, got a load of deer going tomorrow. So we don't kill on farm anymore. Regulations buggered that. Yeah, so we take them down to a friend's farm and he's got a little abattoir and kills them, butchers them up and sells them off. So it goes all around Australia. I've never seen that part. Yeah, I, I haven't put it on there much because we get poachers, people that love to come onto your farm <laughs> and shoot deer in the middle of the night with a full moon. And you put deer content up and bloody hell, there's going to be headlights or tail lights going across the paddock at some point. So I learned they, a lesson on that. They want to come shoot them themselves and they steal your deer? Yeah, 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 poaching. So where we farm, there's a lot of wilderness around us and we like I think we have the highest sales of Winchester ammunition in Australia out of our service station. Like a, a town of 400 people has two gun shops. So, yeah, we're kind of like a gateway to the highlands, to the lakes, and people shoot and hunt. And, yeah, there's a real hunting culture here. How are the gun laws in Australia? Because I thought they were more strict than they are here. Yeah, particularly Tasmania. So we had the Port Arthur Massacre, which was a, a gunman with a semi-automatic went berserk at a tourist place and killed a whole heap of people. Lots of kids, friends, friends of ours were killed in it. And our prime minister then had a gun amnesty, changed the gun laws significantly. And if you get your picture taken holding a gun without a license, they'll come for you. Like it's really strict here. So yeah, guys that own guns, you got to lock them up, bolts out, separate ammunition, storage, and you get ordered by the police all the time. So like random checks. Yep, yeah, they'll ring you and say, we're coming to your place in an hour, we want to see your gun safe. And then the following weapons should be in there. If someone else is storing your weapons, you know, they've got to have a letter saying it's happening and, yeah, all sorts of stuff. So it's pretty full on. Wow. You've got to have, so this gun will be stored this place? Yep, yeah, and you're only allowed certain categories of firearms as well. So farmers, you know, semi-automatics are basically gone. Only pest controllers can have those if absolutely necessary. Silences are illegal. Um, then, you know, certain calibers, rim fires and center fires and, yeah, like ABCD a, a, categories of firearms. So, yeah, certain people can only store certain types of guns and you've got to have a valid reason for them too. So, yeah, it's pretty full on down here. It's a whole different world here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I watched all these posts and guys chugging along in the tractor with like a rifle mount in the front corner. <laughs> Just like here, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you you've mentioned before that you have gates that get left open. It, oh yeah, here's yeah. to piss you off. What yeah, was big time? Is that poachers or, or are you on public land or no? It's, I have it like I have crews of shooters come through on the farm, sort of hunting and chasing deer and and keeping wildlife numbers at bay. Otherwise, they just explode. And, yeah, you know, you, you might get a couple of buggies go through and the last person didn't realise that the gate was meant to be shut or it's dark and they didn't latch the gate properly. And like, well, yeah, I had 4,000 sheep 
merge back into one mob and it's like a day's work in the yards to sort the bloody things back out again and you just you see the gate and you're like oh you <laughs> send them all group text it's like it's pretty funny on a so in the deer season there is a season for it yeah the guys get hyped on it they don't shower for a week they start to stink and then they get there two days early and all their camo and one of my farms is this little pine plantation just over the fence and a, a guy's just bought this farm and I go and see him on the Monday after the opening weekend because usually there's an argument, someone's jumped the fence or whatever. But he goes, he goes, man, I found a set of underpants in my pine trees and a giant turd. And <laughs> we haven't been up here shooting. I reckon someone was there looking for the uh, looking for my for the deer. So then I sent like a group text. So I'm like, hey guys, you know, good opening weekend, no great arguments. Um, someone's dropped these. I'm not going to do a CSI forensic test on the turd sample. But uh, you're on the wrong side of the fence. And these guys are just all like, how did this guy work this out? How did he find our underpants? <laughs> it's just like, you don't need to do that to me. So, and, of course, it's never them. When you get different groups over a week and it takes you a week to notice, it's, it's so hard. It could have been me. You never know. But um, yeah. You never know. <laughs> One of those tricky things, isn't it? Acres would be seven and a bit thousand. So 7,000 acres. Yeah. About 7,000. 7,000. Okay. So do you do things by hectares or acres there? We're hectares and tons and kilograms. Okay. We're pretty standard. I reckon you guys are pretty standard. (laughs) See, we're above standard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Got your own rules and bushels. I haven't quite figured out the volumetrics of a bushel versus weight. So most of the stuff we do here is like tons per hectare. Yeah. So we're two and a bit thousand hectares of, of farmland. A lot of it's bush. So, yeah, just trees and an understory and, you know, remnant vegetation that's been there since since farming started. And then, yeah, then we've got our open country. A lot of it's crap ground that you can't, you know, well, not crap, but it's only suited to grazing. So right, sheep it's not tillable. It? It's for... Yeah. Sure. And then what I do, go and crop. So I've got about a 1,000 acres of cropping under irrigation and then probably do another 500 hectares dry land, so on natural rainfall like you guys. So irrigation is a big part of what we do. And then under that, we do a heap of mixed, like as part of a rotation. We, we aren't just corn and soybean. Like I look at your rotation and go, damn, that'd be ideal. <laughs> but we're, yeah, a bit of everything. So you're it's doing a, several more crops then? Yeah, heaps of stuff. Grow a lot of drugs. So do heaps of opium for the world pharmaceutical supply, for medicines from codeine through to surgery, so that sort of stuff. So Tasmania supplies the lion's share of the world's legal opioids or alkaloids. How do they regulate that? Like, how do you keep people from not, I mean, because I would assume people can just come cut that out of your field and get high if they yeah. knew what they were doing. Yeah, um, you'll most likely die if you try that. Oh. So that helps. Um, we pay a subsidy <laughs> to make sure at the top of Google. So if someone wants to Google opium tea or how do I make that, it'll pop up at the top of Google and you'll get some pretty good control measures put down, put to you saying, hey. <laughs> Not a good yeah, idea. Uh, don't want to do this, guys. Yeah, it's like, so like in Afghanistan or somewhere where you see them taking the capsule, cutting it, taking the resin out of the capsule and doing it, it might have 0.1% alkaloid in it, whereas okay. we can have crops yielding 8 or 9% alkaloid in it in a really good system. So wow. you cock the dose rate up straight away. And then secondly, there's a whole tier, there's a whole group of alkaloids. Like you start at your base of morphine, junk codeine, thebanes, oxycodeine, you know, the green whistles when you break your legs skiing. We grow that as well, noscopine. So there's all these alkaloids and like if you go boil up thebane, you're in trouble. Like the dudes, you find them dead sitting over the pot holding the spoon. Like a yeah, unfortunately we've had a few backpackers, tragedies like that. It's really I sad. Would, I would think yeah. so. Yeah, and it's a challenging industry too because, I mean, America's had a big problem with some opioid addictions and things and, yeah, people turn around and then call me a murderer for it. Like I've been trolled pretty hard online. I was in a few American magazines about it a couple of years ago and, yeah, you get trolled pretty hard over it and you're like, it's like blaming me for drink drivers because I grow barley that goes into whiskey. Right. I'm growing a crop. It's regulated. Like America regulates it. The DEA set. There's an international narcotics board. They set the license quotas, the volumes we can grow. So it's never a sure thing. And then we grow on a license. You can't have a criminal record. You're told how many hectares you can grow. GPS pin of the paddock. You write an agreement of who's going to enter the paddock. And then off you go. They harvest. It's very profitable. Like it's a good crop if you get it right. It's damn hard to grow though. 
Is it like a lot of water or what makes it so hard to grow? It takes a bit of water. It sulks quite a bit of chemistry to get it up and going, disease pressure. So we kind of plant, this will be upside down for you guys, but we try and plant August, September, and everything's over by December. So it's like 100 days of, you know, $2,000 a hectare to $3,000 a hectare of inputs to grow it. But if you get it right, some guys will do eight or $9,000 a hectare gross. So you can make good money on it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, when you yeah. say that now, how does your dollar compare to the US dollar? Do you have any idea? No, about 70 odd cents. So yeah, we're 70 cents against your dollars at the moment, I think. Okay. So we, we had parity for a while, but we're 30% yeah. off or so. Yeah. Yeah. We're still talking okay. big dollars. Portland soybeans isn't doing that. No, that's <laughs> right. No. Yeah. Hold on. Before we get too far, we have to, who, who, we gotta figure who, out who, who Will is. Who are we talking to, guys? <laughs> yeah, before we get into the weeds, we better figure out who Will is, where you're at, yeah. why you talk funny. <laughs> oh, mate. Uh, yeah, so I'm Will Bignall. I'm a farmer in Tasmania, which is the island under Australia. So I'm under, down under. Seventh generation farmer on family farm. Farming about 7,000 acres at the moment, sheep are our core business, and yeah, irrigated cropping, drugs and lamb chops are kind of the fundamentals of the business. And Drugs and yeah. lamb chops, that should be on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's like a dream farm. <laughs> oh yeah, it's good, man. The parties are good. I crack into that, and we've done a lot of diversification over our farm history, so it's been a very mixed up farm, a lot of history on it, a lot of cool history, and just yeah, in a lucky position to be farming, and I've, I've had a pretty interesting, diverse career before I came back to farming. But you know, seventh generation farmer, you know, it's like Zach. We, the, you should see the silver spoon I've got; it's massive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah, just I've had an interesting life, and yeah, I sort of brandy through pipeline, through drainage. So I've got a UAV company flying drones, sort of operate a few places around the world, mainly in Australia though, and. Yeah, kind of got right into drainage and saw this master pipe layer dude and was pretty curious what he was up to and asked you a heap of questions about your data and whatnot because you lay a fair bit of pipe, man. Like, <laughs> it's only just taking off in Tassie again, sort of this, this drainage phase. So with all our irrigated cropping, it's an essential part of what we've got to do. So you, you don't do much drain tile yourself? No, it's a, one of my best mates just bought a big machine a bit of it happened in the north of our state. Like, we're a very small island. It's only sort of 500 kilometres across. So it's tiny, but very diverse. And so some guys up in the north of the state, tile drainage was a big thing in the 70s and 80s, and then it kind of fell out of favour and there wasn't the gear here. And so, yeah, my mate Dave and his brother bought some good gear in and have got straight into it. Another guy came over and bought a tile plough out of Minnesota and put that behind a big quad track. and uh, Our soils here, we've got more rock than you can imagine, really hard clay, because Australia's old. Like, it's really weathered. It's not young. Like, you guys are on those sedimentary black clays and, oh, what's your soil? And just go, yeah, okay, it's a Sunday soil. Like, it's hard to work, but it sort of seems to be deep. And, you know, I'm forever looking at Randy's soil profiles, those cuttings you got. Like, I'm curious as hell. <laughs> but, yeah, our soils, we hit rock. Like, about that far down, we're into rock, five inches in and, yeah, it's dirt. That's crazy, and stuff will grow in that little bit of dirt? Yeah, not overly well in my corner of the world. Like, it's pretty tough country. But you go to the northwest of our state, and it's metres of red soil, um, some of the best soils in the world, and we grow beautiful vegetables, lots of potatoes, peas, onions, lots of processing vegetables through the pyrethrum for insect sprays, poppies. Yeah, so Simplot have got a headquarters here. McCain's had a headquarters here. So, yeah, the northwest of the state's a lot of vegetables. The middle of the state kind of focuses on broadacre cropping, a lot of your grains and that sort of stuff through to cattle, heaps of dairying. And then where I am is kind of, yeah, sheep and mixed cropping, cereals, and you head south and you turn into apples and tourists and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, and that's in the space of, what is it, two miles? So, you know, three, a 250-mile island. Right. Yeah, it's a really diverse space. And, and it's changing. Yeah, it's a third yeah. of us is world heritage and there's only half a million of us on the island. So so is the majority of the island irrigated or kind of just your area? I mean, when you talk about the red clays where they're growing vegetables, is that irrigated as well? Yeah, they don't need it as much. They usually finish vegetables off. So they'll have dams, but our governments put a lot of investment into building irrigation infrastructure. 
So I've just had one of those schemes come through. You buy into the water and subsidise part of it, like the government subsidises development, and then you get nation building out of it. So most of the states now seize its wealth in irrigated agriculture because you just get that continuity of production and, and yield and, and options. So, yeah, we like I live and breathe irrigation pretty heavily. It's a key part of our business. Yeah. You got Randy. I want to go back to the poppies. You want oh, to go back to the poppies? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I so I saw those on on your page and I knew what they looked like. And then you, you, you always call them poppies. So I assumed yep. it was papa seeds. Like you were yeah, yeah. Is that where papa seeds come from? I mean, is it actually yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in that planter. Haven't you ever heard that if you eat a poppy seed, nothing you can fail a drug test? But yeah, so same plant. But are you actually harvesting the seed or you're harvesting the opium? Yeah, yeah, so the seed, the the bit you want's the capsule on top. That's that's where the alkaloid sits within that. The straw underneath on the stalk you don't want. Yeah, and then the seeds inside the capsule. You can use a bit of chemistry and de-seed the crop. Particularly, they've got to freight it somewhere to be processed. You don't want to be shipping seed. But, yeah, a lot of good paddocks clean. The chemistry gets changed a bit. And, yeah, whole markets, poppy seeds for bagels and stuff like America loves them. Also, people are crushing it as a biofuel. So some buses in the north of the state run on poppy seed oil for biofuel. Yeah, and then the mark, the leftover residue goes out as compost and stuff. So, But you're just harvesting... For opium, not the actual yeah, yeah, we're getting the getting the capsule off. That's what we pay. So we get paid on kilograms of alkaloid produced, like per hectare or per acre. So it's a measure of how many kilograms of raw alkaloid you get. So the concentration's critical. That seems to be generated by a mouse, like in the hamster wheel, that just stops on a lucky number. That's how it feels. So you never quite know what you're going to get paid, and you put your heart and soul into it for 100 days of, of hard, hard work. And then, yeah, you've got to wait for the harvest, wait for the chemical assay analysis, and then you'll get your your price. So what kind of things affect the chemical analysis of the crop? Water, I would assume? and Sunlight hours, nobody knows. I mean, that's what that hamster does in that wheel. He just comes up with the magic. <laughs> you've got to, like, huh. accept it. We, we can, if you don't get the crop stressed, sunlight hours, heat, right irrigation scheduling, no stresses, you can do it. But... The thing is, there are guys that do it consistently well year in, year out. I'm, I fluctuate a fair bit. I'm, I tell you, I'm good with a few beers in me, but I'm pretty average. <laughs> you know? We all are, Will. <laughs> yeah. We all know that time is money, and one of the best ways that you can save on both right now is with FBN Direct. You can shop for everything you need this season from their online store 24-7. That means 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anytime. And with the new delivery transparency feature, you can now view the estimated delivery windows before you buy anything right online, right there on the site. FBN makes getting what I need in season quick and easy. We've actually got all our chemicals and all of our seed delivered right to our farm already. Head on over to FBN.com right now. And if you're not a member, that's not a problem because there's no fee to join. But then I've got mates that just consistently nail it. Like this year, I had a lucky year. I got, I got the second best crop. Don't know what I did right. I did it the same as every other year, but it's been a wonderful industry for our state. Like it's brought a lot of guys like me that went off and did other careers and then came back to the farm. Like it's brought bankers to accountants to, you know, guys doing kick-ass jobs to come back farming and, and poppies are a part of it because you actually get rewarded for the hard work, which is so rare in farming, isn't it? Like you can dog yourself and then get some good money for it and pay some debt down. <laughs> Are there other places that they grow like the poppy plant yeah, that you're talking um, about, the poppy crop? Yeah, Poland grow a bit, France grow a bit, Spain are into it on smaller scales, but they aren't as good as us in Tasmania basically. So we we are the world leaders in in kilograms of alkaloid per hectare. Like we nail it. You've got smart farmers, good infrastructure, stable government, and processes that are here. So so you what guys, that was my next question. You guys process there also then? And then it's... Some of it, yeah. That's the thing. Like you can take semi-load after semi-load of raw straw and then it just goes out in one barrel under like a SWAT team and a private jet. But yeah, so we it then goes into your pharmaceutical companies. So pharmaceutical companies originally set up the industry in Australia. So GlaxoSmithKline and Johnson & Johnson. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then they've since sold those companies and... Yeah, they've changed names a bit, but we still grow for them. 
it's, it's a pretty involved industry. Like, you know, it's like we all put a lot of effort in. After this, we've got a, a poppy growers annual board meeting just down the road here. And we get our areas cut up and down. So this whole area, one company pulled out. One and a half thousand hectares of poppies just pulled out. And we've all invested millions lately into these irrigation schemes and stuff. So it's hurt a fair few guys. So the next meeting I go to is going to be a bit heated, but have a few beers and sit down the back quietly, I think. But yeah, we, we're pretty passionate about it and we love it. Like it's a, it's a beautiful industry for our state. No denying it. He said pulled out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it happens. How do you harvest the poppy? Like, are you harvesting them with a with a combine? I mean, how do you harvest the seeds? You can if you if you've stuffed up and your crop falls over. So if it lodges, you get a combine in, but then you get paid nothing because there's a heap of straw in it, like the the stalk. So it's a modified like this one. We got a case cotton harvester, cotton picker, and it's got a, a finger front, and the capsule comes in and gets popped with a cutter bar. So the fingers rake it, and it kind of leans the crop tries to just get the capsule, cuts it off through a blower and then blown into the hopper in the back. And they're all homemade. Kind of like a forage harvester meets a cotton harvester meets a combine. So they're all Frankenstein machines. Have you seen them, Randy, on, on the gram or not? Yeah, I have. Yep. Do you own that yourself or does a group of you? No, a few guys, a few contractors own them and then contract harvest. So they'll okay. go and follow the crops. Yeah, so we, we apply for a poppy licence to grow. You get your police check done no criminal record, you'll then meet your field officer, he'll look at your paddocks. You've got to have a long rotation too, so like a ideally four-year rotation. So, yeah, you can't just come straight back to poppies, you know, year after year and cash crop. It's 20% of my cropping area gets to go to poppies. So I've grown, and and then it depends if the industry wants it. Like if the DEA and the International Narcotics Board says, no, there's, you know, COVID screwed us because there was no surgeries where a lot of it's used. Oh, wow, I wouldn't have been. Yeah. And so global things really affect us. Yeah, so we had this no surgeries, no elective surgeries. Nobody's been out and about. Nobody's getting hurt. So, yeah, they're not chewing through it. So this company just pulled out of our whole district. And, you know, all my mates just hands in the air going, hell, you know, this is a big, big part of our business model. How long have you been farming opium? I'm 10 years into it now. But in this district, it's been happening for about 50. So GlaxoSmith Klein came here after the war, World War II, and started developing it and it matured in the 90s had a boom time and yeah now it's back to yeah you've got to be switched on with what you're doing and do it right and it'll reward you they don't hand out the pills here in the u.s like they used to that's for sure yeah and obama changed prescription rates trump also got into it pretty hard so you know that has a knock-on effect on some of the market like codeine and things like that i'm a better codeine grower than i am noscopine or thebanes or anything like so we don't really get to choose. You're kind of told you're growing that you're growing this this year, and this is what you can have. These are your options. So we take it. Yeah. So are there like different varieties of the poppies that make the different drugs? Yep. Yep. Different varieties, different ways to manage them. Some are weak. Some are strong. It's right. a huge so amount like, of research in plant breeding. One would be There's like no oxycodone. One would be just yep. Morphine. Like it's like oxycodone, oxycotton. Are those like two different? Yeah, they'll, they'll fractionalize that out. And you can do various stresses to produce two alkaloids in the one plant. Yeah. It's a fun crop. Like, it's technical to grow. And everyone focuses on the negative and wants to attack you on it. But then when you – like, I was at a car crash the other day and the person is screaming their head off, trapped, panicked, full-blown going berserk. And you just watch them get the pain relief. They relax. We can extract them from the car. And you kind of just go, yeah. I most likely had a finger in that and you watch that person come out of it and you're just like, it is a bloody good thing I'm doing. Whereas people come at you, like I got trolled so hard from the States about growing opium and I'm just kind of like, yeah, you know, it's, I'm just a grower, but yeah, I do have a conscience. Right. Right. And it's not like the farmers have to kill. I mean, obviously there's a place for pain pills in modern medicine. I I just had my gallbladder out two weeks ago and yeah, I'm pretty thankful for the the poppies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And, you, you know, when, when mates like crash, because mountain biking's big in Tasmania, when my mates stack it and break the collarbone or something, you see them on the green whistle, you're like, thanks for supporting the industry, mate. You've done well. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get to grow every year? Because you said you got to apply and you have to. Yeah, like some years I've grown 130, 140 hectares. 
and then other years I've been cut back to 20, 25, which, you know, is a massive knock to your cash flow. Right. Um, so it's never a sure thing, but, yeah, be nice, buy them beers. Yeah, like it's a fascinating crop. Um, but it only represents like 20% of my income, but it, it's a nice buffer to allow you to then keep changing your business and do things. So sure. like barley, grow a lot of barley, that makes fair money. It's consistent. You know, we know we're going to get between eight to nine tonnes a hectare. We can sell it. We can store it. It all sort of works. Uh, and then we put sheep under the irrigation and fatten them to make lamb chops and roasts for supermarkets. And, you know, we do 6,000 of those a year here. And they they don't make sensational money. They're very consistent. But, like, your best lamb operation is as good as a bad poppy crop and, you know, is an average barley crop. So, it's it's a bit brutal. It looks awesome. Like it looks like a really sexy production model, but profitability of it is touch and go. But we need it in our rotation so we can we can have a pasture phase in our irrigation blocks to rebuild organic carbon levels in the soil, look after our soil structure because they are so fragile, and then come out of it into a cropping phase and grow poppies, have profitability, and then yeah, keep that rotation sustainable for you know years to come. Now so, you said you get trolled hard from America for growing the poppy. Yeah. Is, is it particularly from like from the US? People people are upset yep. with you? That yeah, seems there's, there's, to me like such an American thing <laughs> to go after the foreign farmer for growing uh, the poppy yep. that produces there goes into the drug that they irresponsibly choose to take themselves, right? Well, it was the yeah. it was the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies that screwed over the Americans. Well, like, of course, we're all just going to blame somebody else for the yeah. problems we make for ourselves, right? So but, we're going to go to the poppy farmer in Tasmania yes. because we- Find him on Instagram and Twitter and just flog him. Yeah, and, it uh, just- even, oh. even rang. Like, I was just like, radio. And I, and I listened to them, and in the end, I had the former response. So a lot of the lobby groups- I actually engaged with, had a Zoom meeting with the directors of two big lobby groups and kind of said, you know, this is my perspective, how I see it. Yep, there was a loophole that was exploited, but here's the positive sides of what we do. Here's, you know, you've got a problem in your behaviour. These, these chemicals are used all over the world with some problems in some areas, but, you know, they say it's the most abused drug in the world or something. And the reason it's like that is because you've got to get so much paperwork to get your hands on it. Like, the underreporting of cocaine is probably massive compared to, you know, people going and taking prescription drugs and abusing them. It's pretty easy to measure. Yeah, right. to I, yeah. You never think of that. It's it's right. easy to measure compared to everything. Exactly. So of course we're going to be that way. Statistics, like we're screwed. You know, That's a really good point. Yeah, it's like the crime rate goes up the more churches there are. It's got nothing to do with the higher population and more churches. It's just right. You know, right. Screwing stats to screw us. Work all day and everyone's convinced online we're trying to kill them. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, goddamn. That's why you started your geek, wasn't it? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's why we're here. Yeah, yeah. And I'm the same. Like, I'm only a little fish in the Instagram world, but, you know, I sort of just, just run my day to day farm stuff. Initially, we were heavily diversified and trendy food well, but more and more, it's just my day to day farming, just trying to let people see that we're just doing it. Like, it's what, how we roll, it's what we enjoy. It's funny to see who watches it. Like it's it's intriguing to watch. It's not many many viewers, but so there's a bit of clout about that watches it, and then they'll ring or ask, and journal, a lot of journos watch it, and then we'll make stories out of some of my discussion points. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that's the best way to get to be cliche to get the story out there, right? Is to just like you say, the day to day, we're just out here yep. doing what we do, and I think that's yeah. the best way to get that message out. Yeah, I did a national TV broadcast yesterday, like a semi-live thing on a panel discussion. And, and yeah, I just said, I'm just a professional farmer. That's all I do. I'm just doing my job. I really love it. It's what I'm doing. And, oh, man, the pushback on Twitter and stuff was epic. I was like, God, <laughs> people, you know, just like people ringing me, trolling me in front of my kids. Like, yeah, it's crap. And I'm like, yeah, okay, put my head up. What do you expect? And I don't know, I've toyed with it a bit. Like, I... I'm an overeducated know-it-all, according to some, but I have invested a bit of time in my in my career and learnt another skill set, and I'm pretty passionate about it and happy to talk about it. So, come at me, sort of. In Australia, what are like some of the misconceptions? Like, what do the consumers? I know probably a lot of the same things, but like, what's the problem that people have with the farmers where you're at? Like, is it they use too much water or? Oh yeah, cotton's a big one on the mainland of Australia. Like. 
apparently that's emptying all the river systems, but almond orchards and everything else seem to be okay. It's how you use that water. So river systems get a real flogging with irrigation and we need it. Like we're a dry continent, but we have a lot of water. Roundup, we're all trying to kill you with Roundup, just the same as you guys. We're all just industrial farmers. You know, this industrial ag concept, I just find a crock. I really battle with that. And everything's a corporate farm. Like you guys are the same in America. What's corporate about you guys? Like your family farming operations or there might be a bit of complexity in, in who's who and you make a company around it to save arguments. But right. 80% of farms, 90% of farms here are just family farms. Same as you guys, like, you know, you go off, you do your other things, and then you come back to it. That's the way it goes. I've done the same. I, I disappeared for a few years. I still came home and helped my old man, but went off, did my career, did a bit of science and came back, and now I'm full-time farming and love it. What, if you don't mind me asking, what did you go do while you didn't farm? <laughs> those uh, those guys that thunder, uh, what's it called? The, the thunder, thunder from, from down, down under. under. Yeah, well, those, that yeah that's it, mate. We've got magnets down here too. I to thought get I recognized you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, went, I went to university. I was going to go to ag college. But I went to university, did an ag science degree. I came home. There was a drought. My dad was sort of looking at me saying, oh, can you go find another job and try and support it? So I went back to uni again and did a doctorate. So I did a PhD in omega-3 in sheep, so molecular genetics stuff. Most unlikely bloke to do it, I can tell you that. And, yeah, had a really interesting journey through that. Came out the other side of that and then worked for six years dealing with fish waste, creating human-grade fish oil capsules, dog food, prawn food, barramundi food, chicken food, human food. Like it was, yeah, it was a good job, plus pottering about the farm at the same time. And then I started a drone company in 2011, then started flying drones, doing farm work, and then got into video work and then got into mining, mineral exploration style stuff and still doing that. Got a few guys that work in the business and, yeah, we have a lot of fun with it. But, that's yeah, and I came home. <laughs> yeah, that's, Zach can't, I mean, Zach's over here trying to take notes on all the things. Yeah, I just keep... like... I can't dance and I can't drive a train. Okay. Done the theory. <laughs> I have a lot of drone and, and aviation related questions for him, but we're going to wait till we get through the farming stuff first. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I listen to Randy's story and I just, it blows me out too. Like, I love your story, man. And then like, you've done the same though, Zach, you, you went off and what, you built race car bodies and drove cars fast and worked at an airport, some boardroom table or something. You know, <laughs> something, yeah, something. Yeah, how about the weather, right? Um, built a table, <laughs> uh, polished the table. <laughs> oh, yeah, swept it clean. Oh, dear, now I lost my train of thought. So, you know, yeah, and a lot of guys my age, like a lot of us are doing that. I think we are, we go off, come back, try things, make sure you want to do it. So, like, yeah, and I, I love the farming, and our farm was really complex. Like, we milked sheep, made cheese grew a whole heap of vegetables, grew strawberry plants. So we grow 2 million strawberry plants a year on the farm. We've got a flour mill, grow specialty grains. My uncle's now a distiller. This is all your farm? Holy... Yeah, yep, yeah. Why don't you just grow corn and soybeans? Yeah, no, bloody simple. (laughs) (laughs) I'll come in and I've had a day of just hell and sit down with a beer and jump into bed and I'll, I'll, you know, sit down and chuck on your channel and I'll watch your videos like, oh, shit. Imagine just getting in a tractor and only one seed, you know, just <laughs> get that every night. One, like I look at your big semi-trailers with your spray rig setups and you've just got like a pallet of one bloody chemical and I've got like six little brews for the peas and then I've got the marijuana stuff and then I've got the opium spray and then I've got some pasture spray all in a day and you're just like tank mixes of hell, your decontamination stuff and those pump mate, mix mate things like what Cold Corn Stars got. Like I just look at those and just froth and think. And I look, I googled them up, and I'm like, "Yeah, shit, the, the different stuff I'm putting through it, it's not going to like me." <laughs> <laughs> You're buying pallet loads of clethodon, and I'm just like, "Yeah, no." <laughs> like we use it, and we'll do it for you know a couple of drums of it, and then yeah, and then we're on to the next damn herbicide, and yeah, and they all bloody change names every month. Oh, isn't so, that annoying? That drives me absolutely oh, yeah. nuts. Is trying to keep up with the herbicide names. <laughs> yeah, like, every year I got to relearn it all again. Oh, I get so sick. My dad will ring up and you're like, where's the roundup? And I'm like, it's called Crucial now. And he's like, what the hell is that? <laughs> right. like, it's roundup. And he's like, no, it's not. Like, yeah, oh, no, it's it. Power Max. Power Max is the drum in that chem store, actually. And you're just like, oh. And then they go to a, 
it's just yeah, and then in your inventory and all that sort of crap when you're trying to get audited. What's this? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what alpha is. Right. <laughs> then, then you got to find the active, and then you research yeah. the active to figure out the other fifteen names that it comes as. Uh, and then you realize, yeah, yeah. oh, oh shit, we didn't need that. We got a whole bunch over here. Yeah, that's what so You're going to bought ten drums of the same thing, and you're like, oh, come back to the shop, <laughs> and you're like, hey, hey boys, <laughs> I put this back. See, we're not so but, different. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's all the same. I mean, like I, I looked at the FBN stuff as well that's coming to Oz and, yeah, like for the big guys with efficiencies and those simplified systems, it's great. Like the problem we have here is in Tassie, we're really complex farms compared to anywhere else and it does yield good money, but the, the mental load is, is epic. Like one minute you're looking at hemp, then you go to your poppy paddock, then you're looking at sheep, you're coordinating a barley harvest, and you know you probably got shearing going on somewhere in some other corner of the farm like it just the complexity gets stupid on your farm then okay so you said you're a family farm so do you have a brother or sister or like is it just your no, I, had a, I grew up there were five of us five kids on the farm three cousins and my brother and i and, and dad's older brother farm with us that partnership dissolved in 2000 all my cousins are it gurus one's brewing beer the other one runs a big it company but yeah just Doers, a couple of guys. One guy's a commercial diver. Yeah, I kind of came home farming. My brother got into it. He got into winemaking in a big way and loved it. Went to France, did a few vintages, chased girls around the European Alps, and and had a ball. And then came back, worked as a poppy field officer. And then in 2011, he was unfortunately killed. Motorbike race on the farm. He died on the bloody farm in a race. And went that sucked. Like it, it knocked me for six. Knocked the whole family on on its ass. Yeah, and I. Stood there at his funeral. So we buried him on the farm under a tree that we planted when he was born. So dug his grave. It's pretty funny. Like I, I went and lay in it and had a look at this view, checked out the view and thought, yeah, you're here for eternity, dude. We'll see what it's like. And I climbed out and I did that in the dark. Like I'd snuck off. And, then, yeah, my old man had done the same thing. <laughs> he's later that night, we are all full of grog and he's like, yeah, I'd align it and telling all his mates all this stuff. I'm like, oh, shit, so did I. He had like a three-day wake. Like it was just insane. We're still finding stubbies all over the farm and empty cans. But and he had a great group of friends like all over the world and he wasn't into land titles, trophies. Oh, i got so many hectares and so many horsepower. Shit. He was into photography, people, experiences, and a different egg to me. And I stood there giving the obituary to, like, the paddock was full with, like, five or 600 people. There's cars, kilometres up the driveway, people from all around the world. And I, I just looked like, oh, shit, there's more to life than trophies and, and measures. So there I had an epiphany that I'd focus on people and relationships and, and I think everything else follows once you do that. And yeah, I kind of, it changed my outlook a lot on life and didn't want to let the tragedy define me. Yeah. So yeah, kind of came out of the other side of that with a different ethos of what I was going to be and what I was going to do. So we, we looked at a lot of what was happening on the farm and it just simplified. So we stopped making cheese. I used to run a catering business. So used to do events and cook for people and stuff with a few mates and sell like our farm produce. Okay. And sure. yeah, because we supplied all the chefs and stuff and I, knew a way around the kitchen and had a bit of fun with that got rid of that business the flour milling so we got like the oldest water mill in australia oh in the southern hemisphere on our farm the oldest um, what flour mill for oh, milling grains. Mill. you you did a quick tour of that I don't yeah know, whatever it was is that the flour mill yeah yeah that's it yep then all the waterworks associated with it so in floods we have a big problem with floods and we got every time it rains high we've got to go down and put in hatches and stuff and so that milled flour for a long, long time. My, my dad restored it. It's nearly 200 years old, like 1823 it was built. It's a nice piece of history. And I've got another flour mill. So I used to, since I was 16, I was milling flour for bakers just for cash, no receipts. <laughs> and, so you know, that, that, and that paid for my flying <laughs> lessons and all sorts of stuff. You know, I had a good old time with that and got to know a lot of good people. And, you know, you go around to a bake, you go to bakers at like midnight and they wanted to have a beer, a chat, and I'm full of grog. You know, i got a few bags of flour for you, boys, you know. And you'll leave and there'll be, bloody, there'll be a piece of chocolate in your pocket, flour down your back and a frigging baguette stuffed up your backside as you leave the door. <laughs> in the field, there's no time for downtime. And when the pressure is on, you need to trust your equipment to stand up to the task. That's when you turn to Mystic for performance and protection you can count on. 
Mystic lubricants are specially formulated to keep up with your demands. Now, you might be asking yourselves, how can that be? Mystic products are developed in real-world conditions with real-world workers in mind, and that means that your equipment is covered regardless of what's happening outside. With Mystic, you can get to work with confidence knowing your lubricants are engineered to thrive even under the most extreme and unforgiving conditions. Go ahead. Put your equipment to the test anytime, anywhere, because when it comes to superior performance and unmatched protection, Mystic always delivers. And when your equipment is protected, so is your livelihood. It's the reason so many folks choose to ride with Mystic. Because out here, performance under pressure isn't a request. It's a requirement. Go to mysticlubes.com to learn more about their line of products. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. They're good buds. Like I had a ball with those guys. So supplying those guys for, oh, geez, 16, 17 years, and then I finally just kind of quit. I've never met a rich flower miller yet. Um, <laughs> and they grew all the weird grains, you know, rye corn, cereal rye. We grew a lot of that. And we'd been milling it. We ran farm tours, TV, a lot of TV shows and all that sort of stuff. So they heap of media time. Yeah, I just sort of, I keep it and preserve it. Like I don't want to destroy it because it's a, it's a beautiful piece of history. Right. And so I keep it safe like I'm custodian but just have the time I've got three kids expanding and changing my farm every damn day like I'll get back to it yeah we're getting there so I love that and it's just a yeah part of it of what we do so so you must have employees then or something to help you manage all of this it sounds like yeah I've got two brothers that work for me good eggs like really good kids yeah and just just invested in gear and infrastructure to try and make it all work but yeah, that's, that's more than enough. Then my dad comes and helps a bit and me. So it's just all about planning. Like timeliness is everything. You right. start getting a bit behind. You get, you know, you panic. I get really grumpy and I'll stay up all night cultivating stuff. Well, that video, you um, videos you did Zach of the plowing when you're like rushing to fill it with diesel and then you get the bloody tractor and just like stuck there counting down. <laughs> like It's so true with me. When I get behind, I'm just like this angry bastard until I'm in the damn thing. And then I get in and I'm like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing you can do. Yeah, exactly. You're like, there's so much to do. I need to get out. I need to go. And then you, yeah, chuck someone else in it and, you know, tear off and do other things. And yeah, it's it's no different. We're all the same. Like, yeah. And you just love to get it done. Like, I don't know. I I enjoy getting the jobs done. And the complexity is fun to manage. So being organised, it's got to be organised. I'm not an organised bloke normally, but that's changed. My wife's very organised, so we have a calendar. Oh, <laughs> man. Is it, is it like the Google calendar on your cell phone? Yeah, yeah. So like this big lunch we had the other day, like I booked in the lunch and I booked in the hangover till 7 o'clock the next night. And, you know, it's in the calendar. It's happening. I'm hungover. I'm not going to soccer. Yeah. <laughs> now that's, I do stuff like that too. You yes. have to. I mean, I, like without yeah. my Google calendar, I'm lost. I mean, I put everything in yeah. there. I have to. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I'm screwed. With it. And if I cock a date up or something, I'm in trouble. Like yesterday, I was like getting some sheep ready really early in the morning, getting up the other end of the farm, just tearing around. So I'm really organized for this national TV live broadcast in the afternoon. At 10 o'clock, the phone rings. It's like this guy goes, hey, man, there's like 10 of us down here at your pivot. We're about ready to start the pastor principles that you're hosting. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I tear down there. And I'm like, oh, man, I've done a book this so bad. Look in the calendar. And I'd freaking flick through one Tuesday too many. And, uh, yeah, so then I'm like running an impromptu freaking field day on the farm with these guys. <laughs> and then at midday, I'm like, got to go. Bye. <laughs> Leaving the house and just bolted. <laughs> You're doing this all with yourself and two brothers mostly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit of Wi-Fi. So I got like I got about uh, 2,000 hectares of Wi-Fi. So I got a Wi-Fi network through the farm. So what? Um, what yeah, what did you just say? What, Wi-Fi, like internet? Yeah, internet all through the farm. So I don't get much phone reception. Okay. So well, I've got a high-speed internet connection at the house. I shoot it uh, up to a shed and then it goes to a hilltop to another hilltop and down to the other end of the farm. And then along it, I've got access points that, you know, you connect with your phone, you can make phone calls, FaceTime, talk with people wherever you are, webcams on heaps of stuff. So my irrigators and stuff, I've got webcams on the end of them so I can see if they're going to run into something, if they're still working, pump sheds, electric fences, water meters, taps, power points, lights. Like you can drive past and see the lights on and just tap it off on your phone in a shed or something. It's, It's pretty cool and a lot of this stuff's so cheap. So there's a group of us, again, my mate who's done the drainage business. We just froth on it and we're forever measuring it up. And I've got a mate here as well who's 
right into it. You just buy it online and install it and learn by disasters and cock-ups, but it's really handy. Like it's one of the best things I've done. Uh, just put that in and then uh, I can be because if you're at one end of my farm, it's like it's 16 kilometres to the other end of my farm. So you can be at one end with one irrigator and you've got no idea what's happening down the other end of the farm. And so, yeah, you can just watch on a webcam and see where that irrigator is. If it's hit the stopper, like we crash irrigators and stuff and you, you can watch them. I can stop them, control them on the phone. So, like, I've reduced a lot of that reliance. And I don't live on the farm either. Like, I live an hour away in the city with my wife and kids. So I've got to kind of have that. So I commute. <laughs> How often do the kids get on your phone and are playing games and you got pivots turning on and turning off and tipping <laughs> over? And... <laughs> they, um, yeah, they did that one day. They reversed the pivot for the fun. They thought it was a farm game. And, <laughs> yeah, started and got it walking and I've now put the safety lock in at the confirm code. <laughs> like, yeah, they know now what apps dad will go really mental on. But was, yeah, but was, like I catch them opening up various things. It's funny what kids pick up and watch and learn and the games they play. So like when they go carpet farming, they'll build a Wi-Fi repeater on the top of a chair or something. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, like they pick up what you do. It's pretty cute. Like, yeah, and I love it. But, yeah, just the way the cars fell, I sort of ended up in Hobart an hour away in the capital city and, so I travel up. I've got a house in here near the farm, like in the town. And then, yeah, I just yeah, do the farm work. And I don't know, part of my brother dying, that ethos that if you can't do it in a 10-hour day or an eight-hour day most of the year, you're probably not doing it right. So, yeah, I'm kind of either hire more people, change gear, change systems. But when it's on, it's on. Like you're just 16 hours, do it, you know. Right, right. That yeah. Time of year. And, yeah, and you have those jobs. And when you cock up things or things break or the up fairy turns up, yeah, you've just got to hang back and get it done. But, yeah, school pickups and all that sort of shit. It's all there. My wife's a midwife, so she works in a hospital in Hobart. So, yeah, I often go home, pick up the kids from the grandparents at 6 o'clock, cook them dinner, get them fed, whatever, go do some book work and have a whiskey and go to sleep, get up again, drive up, listen to podcasts, make phone calls, all that sort of jazz. And you are also a firefighter? Yeah, joined our local volunteer brigade. Love that. One of those things, like all us farmers here run our own fire militia, so we've got our own appliances and, and get stuck into it and when there's a fire, we go. But the way the rules are now, like if I'm in Hobart and I want to get up to the farm, if I don't have a yellow jacket on the back seat, I'm not getting through a roadblock. Like people have guns drawn on them and everything. So I kind of, yeah, joined up, got the yellow jacket on. Bushfires are huge here. Like, yeah, when they come, they come. And so on hot, windy days, we'll have – Fire tankers ready, plows ready, fueled up, drip torches, all our gear, smoke kits, pain relief, everything we need, and we'll sit there and wait for the smoke, and then the text goes around and we're all into it. And so, yeah, and then you know, it's another way to get back to community. I like doing that. And, yeah, car crashes, I don't like going to those much just because of the trauma of my brother. But, yeah, you know, house fires and that sort of stuff, I haven't trained for that yet, but enjoy the training, the camaraderie, and, we had big fires here two years ago that like came to the back door of the farm. Like one, we were one ember away from being burnt to the ground, oh. and yeah, it was hectic. Like it was just walls of fire coming at you, like ten helicopters going over bulldozers, and just literally right there, sixteen k's away, and embers were travelling twenty. So it was wasn't much chop, and the same guys in the community were just going out day after day firefighting, and thought, yeah, I better better contribute to this. So got her on and got into it, and love it. It's nice to get that skill set too. It's good fun. Like I look at all your gear and sort of go, wow. <laughs> but yeah, same deal. Like we get they get to burn houses and get all your BA tickets and all that jazz and I love it. Like, yeah, it's good fun. Do you know how many hours you have to for structure fires? So it's all courses. So we do courses here. You'll go down to the training facility, they set fire to it, you do all your tickets, and then you'll have trainers within your brigade that'll then work on competency and, and sign you out. So okay. A couple of weeks' time, I do like a four-day course, a super firefighter course, which is like a basic to advanced bush firefighting course. Okay. Of, yeah. So, and there's another one of my mates who's just moved up to the town. We're doing it together. So it starts on a Friday, ends on a Monday, and then yeah, you get ticketed out, and then you get you can go do more things. So when the pager goes off, you can do more stuff. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'd say definitely like our our rural area is more of a general. So we have a firefighter one, firefighter two certification. Yep. I think it's a hundred and 180 hours now. I think I know the guys. So, the, so this year we had five go through and they started in 
I started early November, two and a half times. So Tuesday nights and Thursday nights for four hours. I think it was four hours. And then every other Saturday and they graduated or got their certificate in April. So they did that all winter long. That's a heap. Like, yeah, we, so we have firefighter one and two, but yeah, we they just put it into these courses and a lot of it's on the ground training with, with senior ranked members and sure. But do you guys have professional firefighters like in your towns and stuff or? No, in, no, you guys in, in the big towns. Yeah. Big so towns, like, yeah. So the town I'm at, we're 280 people is what the population of the town is. But then yep. we cover, we cover about a hundred square miles. Yep. So yeah. through the different townships, we cover different sections of the township and that's kind of how, how ours is made up. But you guys don't get big wildfires, do you? Not big Just ones. Get- no, we've never used air support on, on wildfires. We've been close yep. on a few, but it's, it's more when they get into like swamp areas yep. that we can't really get access to um, Yeah, fight them more that way. But, uh, but no, you go further North, Northern Minnesota, you know, there they do. It's hot and crispy. Yep. A lot yeah. wooded area. They have a lot more yep. conifer trees and stuff that. Yeah. yeah more wooded area. Not, not yeah. as much cropland. Yeah. So you, when it gets out in the grass here, the plains kind of can put it out fast and. Yeah, like we could be, I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but 40-odd degrees and like 8% humidity. So just if you fart too hot, you're going to probably burn your freaking grass under your ass. Like it's, <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> so, yeah, just, just it flicks and it's on like Donkey Kong. Like it just, it's crazy. And often like our brigade will get deployed to another fire in another corner of the state. So there's an overarching controllers that will then deploy guys. So we'll get guys that will go to the mainland Australia and fight fires for a week or two and come back and, whatever but then you get guys like me who are just a farmer they know i've got my limits i'll come out i'll help in bushfires i don't like car accidents but i'll still go to them and yeah and structure fires i'd like to get trained on that did a lot of vertical rescue as a young guy like i was into rock climbing and mountaineering pretty heavily and got into that and so i'd like to do that like i looked at that grain grain bin stuff that you guys had like there's no real capacity like that here that's talked about much but we don't have those giant silos like you guys like our silos are like 80 tons maximum Sure. With and not too, yeah, not too many flat bottom those giant big flat bottom things with those big cavities in it. Like, uh, yeah. Do you think that's because you're the crops that you're growing are generally smaller seeded crops? You're not growing, you know, two hundred bushel yeah. corn. Yeah, so it's like wheat and barley, and there's no real there's no corn industry here other than for silage. So yeah, and the peas and all that sort of stuff, most of processing. So. It's kind of a shift with this new irrigation districts. Like a couple of thousand hectares has been opened up to irrigation every year now for about 10 years. So lots more grains being grown. We're just building these big grain warehouse facilities again and and starting to punch out serious tonnes of grain. We do get nine-tonne barley crops, 14-tonne wheat crops. That's what everyone brags about. But, yeah, you know, some guys are even doing 10-tonne barley crops under irrigation. So it's huge amounts of grain to come off and the logistics of it. So buying trucks, buying silos, augers, all that. So it's coming. <laughs> I want to ask about something you mentioned real briefly here, just long enough for me to make a note. Did you say you're milking sheep? Yeah. Yeah, we milk you're sheep. You're the nipple, don't you know? Well, <laughs> yeah. <Too> small. <laughs> can, can you tell me more about your sheep milking? Well, you look at their ass and they've got that udder on them. It's the most milked animal in the world per head. So France and Europe, there's a lot of it. And then Arabic countries, they're right into it as well. So they'll produce 200 milliliters, like so, you know, like a cup to a liter of milk. And, yeah, just two cups like a cow, put them in a dairy. You can have big rotary dairies or herringbone setups and milk them. You can milk them for about 180 days a year, so not as long a milking cycle as a cow. And the milk's really high milk solid. So we'd milk the sheep and then go make cheese out of it. So we'll make sheep cheese and then sell that around Australia into restaurants. Yeah, it was one of those things my dad did in the late 80s. So he saw it in France uh, when he was travelling, studying deer farming, and then saw it making cheese. And then in 88, we had a recession, and wool was our big business and had stockpiled it, and the government had cocked up the pricing structure. So we were on our knees. Like, we had 50,000 sheep and as a family business, and we are on our knees, so we looked for other things to do. So we, Dad started, he said, oh, I'll make cheese. It's a bit of an idea. I've always wanted to do it. So, yeah, started milking sheep, changed our sheep genetics, and, yeah, started making cheese with a crock pot, jam thermometer, and a French schoolboy dictionary and a French book on cheese making. This was pre-Google. 
kind of glad in some ways my old man didn't have Google back then because the shit we'll be into now. <laughs> <laughs> so is it, is it you or one of the brothers that's milking sheep every day for half the year? Me and my brother and my dad, yeah, we did it till 2013. We stopped. I still have the genetics. Like I still have the sheep and the dairy and the cheese factory. And we could turn back and do it. But just one of those things, like you work so hard and to scale it is really hard. So to drop complexity and simplify my life, yeah, we, you know, I said to dad, what do you want to do? And he just wanted to grow horseradish. And that was, yeah, he didn't want to make cheese. He's sick of it. But he's like one of the best cheesemakers in Australia for blue cheese. Like he won a lot of awards and really, but dad's a really smart, passionate guy. And I just wish he kept making cheese. Like it's good eating. But yeah, milk and sheep. So you gave up cheese making to grow horseradish for your dad? Yeah, we we're already growing it. So at the same time we started making cheese, we started growing strawberry plants because an alpine plant, they vernalize, go dormant. So where we live is quite cold, not not as cold as you guys. Like Randy pisses himself when he sees snow and we're all freaking out about driving <laughs> in it. But like we, we get cold, so we get in the negatives and like autumn, the first month of autumn is colder than the Queensland, so northern Australia, they're winter. So the plant vernalizes, goes dormant, we dig it up, we dig up a couple of million of them and air freight them up to Queensland where it's warm up near the equator. They plant them out and they go, oh, shit, summertime, and there's off-season fruit. So for two years they could get off-season fruit production or extend their fruit production window. And the best thing is that then it gets a bit of disease, gets back into the right life cycle, and they need to buy more. So we had all this beautiful sterile sand, and then we went and went down the garden, got some horseradish, planted it out. And because we had all the chef contacts through the cheese and the venison, just started selling horseradish and he's still doing it. He loves it. Yeah, it's a big international horseradish festival in America. That's the one thing I want to try and hit off next year. It's really? Louis. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the horseradish. Festival. <laughs> yeah, it's full of hot roots, man. <laughs> the only time I will eat horseradish is in my Bloody Marys. Other yeah, that. that's it. Don't you have pickle juice in them or something too? Oh, yeah, pickle juice. But, and you put pickles and olives and... Yeah. A chicken. No, it's just one of these weird things. Guess we get the cold. Like previously grains were dodgy to grow here because of like we could have frost in the middle of summer, which would just wipe out a grain crop. Right. And we got, got off that, changed ourselves back onto, yeah, like climate change has done us good, made those things optional. So the dad focused on his root vegetables. So we did the horseradish, wasabi. I grew wasabi for a fair few years. Celeriac, uh, which is like a celery and a turnip had sex on a full mood and that was their love child. So we'd make that salsify, that's, which is that's the analogy crazy. I was going to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're with me. So, yeah, uh, salsify and Jerusalem artichokes. You ever had those? Sunchokes? Sun what? Like, sunchokes. They're an American native plant. Sun so they're chokes? like a member of the sunflower family. Yeah, and they put a little tuber, like a potato, down the bottom. It has no starch in it. It's all protein and amino acids. So um, celiacs and people can have it and won't inflame them, but they make you fart like hell. I'm so we call them farty jokes. Yeah, Google it. Sun choke? Yeah, C H O K E. Yep. Or Jerusalem artichoke. Oh, artichokes. Okay. There you go. Not the globe one, not the one you not the flower like a thistle, but uh yeah, tuberous Native American food back in the day. Interesting. So yeah, we grow that. Supply all these restaurants, this weird and wacky stuff, but yeah, it's pretty sexy. Like restaurateurs love it and all that jazz and you can get free meals and free beer and but it's so hard to scale. Like I busted my ass for fifteen years trying to scale that through Instagram and, and T V shows and getting the production right, but you just can't scale it. And you can just go produce another three thousand lambs. And, and you said you ginger too, right? That's another you grow that too. Did you mention No, that? I can't do ginger, I did wasabi, so proper Japanese wasabi in the okay. in the river gravel. Yeah, researched that pretty heavily, pushed that industry forward, got out of it. So much hard work, man. Jeremy Clarkson tries it on his latest, on his Amazon Prime series in his river. Maybe we should just start with what you haven't grown. <laughs> Corn and Corn soybeans. soybeans. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, that where you're cooking? Because it seems like you're kind of a chef yourself. Ah, uh, no way, man. I'm just a hack. It's It's one of those things like... My demographic of followers, it's intriguing. They love the bloody cooking. So they love my, my meals because I like to cook as well. But, yeah, like I hung out with chefs so much. You get on the you get on the grog with them and, you know, you, you learn their techniques. And I like to study and try and master things a bit. I'm one of those 
obsessive blokes in that way. But I just enjoy my cooking. People like it on Instagram, so they see it and a bit of a slave to the grammar, I guess, in that way. But yeah, and then I ran the commercial, like that cooking business, which was a lot of fun. Like you take your own produce, turn it into something good, feed it to people, they blow smoke back up your ass about how nice it is and you know, they love it. And <laughs> it it compared to selling a truckload of soybeans, like do they come and blow smoke up your ass or not? Or you know, whereas this way you can go sell half a sheep and yeah, people love it. And it's very rewarding, like that that positive feedback in farming that you don't get in in big scale efficient ag. So it's addictive. And there's a there's a heap of it in Tasmania where we farm, like small scale farms, tourists. That's our you know, with the end of the world. Like you go to the south, there's ice and Antarctica with scientists. East and west is just ocean. So like South Africa or around to you guys. And uh, yeah, go to the north, you got to cross a bit of expensive water to get to the Big Island, which is Australia. And, yeah, so it's, we've got to be pretty diverse, make high-value products, and you just can't ship it. Like, we can't move huge amounts of low-value product. So that's why we're so weird in what we farm. That makes sense, actually. That yeah, makes a lot of a sense. Long, it's a long ways to ship anything, yeah, so I suppose. But, so like, the opium, that's probably, like, they make it into the pill form or whatever before they send it No, it's, it's, it's a pure raw alkaloid, so it's just in drums, you know. Oh, the so they just send the drums to then the yeah. factories over here in the U.S. and yeah. then they make their own, huh? When What's they that? ship a drum of that alkaloid, do they have seriously high security around those drums? If I tell you, I'll have to kill you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think. You might so. not be joking. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, no, it's... It's next level stuff, I think. Yeah. So it's gotta be. Don't know. We don't know much about that. It's all conjecture, but it's it's full on and you can imagine what it's like, can't you? Like, I can imagine, yeah. So. yeah. I can imagine yeah, you yeah. don't really want to know much about that. No, we'll just leave that alone. It's bad enough for people coming into your paddocks and we leave that there. But like my uncle just makes whiskey all on the farm out of Rycorn. So like a bur not bourbon, but he does make bourbon as well, but makes a whiskey out of it and so he sells that all around the globe and like he does the same, he puts it into a thousand litre barrel or a two hundred litre barrel, like plastic cube, and then ships it to America or he's sending stuff to London at the moment. They'll rebottle it there and do the thing because you just can't ship glass to Tasmania, fill it with whiskey and ship it back to the world. So a lot of the stuff we've got to be smart how we get it out. You mentioned mm, marijuana, I think, for a second. Do you guys grow hemp there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're into all the drugs. So, yeah, a bit of hemp. All the um, drugs. Yeah, so that's for seed. There is a medicinal industry here as well, but it's all glass houses. Because we've got, like, a license to grow drugs, you can kind of add it on. So, here we can't federally grow hemp because hemp is still illegal here in the yeah. state. Yeah. It's so weird. They're yeah. categorized separate for you guys, right? Hemp and marijuana is different. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and we get so they'll walk through our crop diagonally and sample it all and then do a THC check at, okay. at a key point. And there were crops ploughed into the ground this year that were too high. I said I'd come burn them, but they wouldn't let me. Really? <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's got a THC level that it has to be. What caused it to be too high? Because that's pretty rare, isn't it? I mean, normally uh, the yeah. hemp plant, the THC is pretty low. Yeah, so trying to breed like shorter crops because the the bloody residue after hemp, it's like having a paddock full of friggin' rope. Like anything with a bearing, you put a, a, I think you guys call it like a real disc or something through it, you'll chew your bearings out before you know what the hell's happened. You know, you put a tillage plough through it and it just it just jags up the tines, walks up to the frame and you're screwed. So they're trying to grow them really short and then you harvest your seed off it for the oil industry and uh, that's what I was growing. So all this breeding that's going on, to try and get short, good plants. So obviously you get back crossing and, yeah, you get these wild types that revert back to a – obviously had THC in it at some point in the genetics. So, yeah, it's a big part of the checking. Is there any coverage on that as far as, like, insurance or any federal coverage, no, we, subsidy? You're we, just out that crop? Yeah, yeah, you're out. And same as poppies, same as everything. Like, I, I look at your crop insurance stuff and I just go, damn, that'd be all right, wouldn't it? And you've got to plant by a certain date and if it all goes tits up, that happens like I have literally lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in rain events in income and I've already sunk like 80,000 into it and it never comes back like I've stood in my poppy crop after spending just shy of $2,000 a hectare I've stood in it opium capsules up to your nuts but you're up to your ankles in friggin water and it 
didn't recover the cost. And yeah, you just got to wear it. So we aren't really subsidised in Australia. We get a bit of money back on diesel because road taxes and all this crap. And the only other way I suppose you call it subsidised is these irrigation schemes that the government contributes to. But other than that, we're totally on our own. So yeah, no crop insurance, nothing like that. You get it wrong, you quickly pivot and do something else. So I had my poppies this year, got them germinated, had a big rain event. I wish I'd laid more pipe, like underground drainage, and turn around and out of like a 40-hectare paddock, about 12 hectares was screwed. So ploughed it out and I sowed maple peas, which, you know, you buy sprouted peas in the supermarket in like little tubs. Yep. So it's for that, for Japanese snack food market. So with my planting date, I could then go plant that in, you know, sow it, put that in my crop in my dead ground, made so much more complexity. And then, yeah, grew peas inside my poppy crop. Harvest dates are out of whack, frigging irrigating it was a pain in the ass. Yeah, but, yeah, we just got to pivot and sow something else and have that plan in your head or sow sheep food or, yeah, we've got to roll with the punches and get up real quick and fix it. How many months a year, like what's your growing season? July, August is our depths of winter where nothing really grows. We get a bit of snow. We get to about minus 12. And then, yeah, from September, so start of spring, we grow. So we don't get like a big winter fallow like you guys. Okay. So like that's why you guys have cover cropping and stuff so huge in your regions. You have that period where your soil shut down and, and coming out of the thaw and stuff, whereas our soils are alive year round. So we will harvest poppies and then go sow wheat into it or sow sheep food and, and have that. And then we just literally spray out, sow in the next crop, water, harvest, eat it, whatever. We're just back to back to back. So, so that's why we're so you've got something in the ground. Yeah, something growing, ground cover. Fallowing's not so much a thing here. So, yeah, we're like the cover crop gurus in some ways. We're just doing it. And we have good soil as a result. But if you pizzle it too hard with cropping, like, you, yeah, you can shit the bed real quick with your soil structure, particularly where we are. Like it's, it's literally three inches of soil if you're lucky. And then you hit clay and shit. Crazy. <laughs> I didn't know yeah, they used shit the bed player. everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. thought shit the bed was like a Midwestern thing. <laughs> oh, no, man. We shit the bed down here. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I say that at least once a day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, you're going to shit the bed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you mean it literally. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. Not a figure of speed, though.